Good morning, IBC family. This month, the, the Children's Church is taking a break, a much-needed break, and uh, one of the things that we value in our church as a church family is that rest is important. And so uh, it's not just about going and going and doing and doing and I'll rest in eternity. It's about learning to rest now and trusting God that he's the one ultimately building his church. And so sometimes it's in our rest that we actually worship accordingly or worship effectively. It's, a, it's a, an opportunity to rest that God has got this. And you know what? He is because he is building that children's ministry like crazy. And I love that there's, there's like 60 of you that are serving and volunteering faithfully uh, every single month and it's awesome. And I know our kids are blessed and now some of these kids are in the room like my two little shrimps right here. So... Um, so, uh, kids, I am mindful of the fact that you're in our, in our service here this morning, and I will be, uh, I know there's going to be words that fly over your head. Even that statement in and of itself probably flew over your head. So, uh, but the fact is, you're here, and I love it because you're part of our church family, and so we're glad that you're in here with us. There's a name that I know for some of you is going to be familiar, and maybe some of you little kids have no idea, but there's a, a guy by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller uh, was a man who was known for many, many things. God used him in many, many different ways, but probably the most prominent way in which God used this faithful man by the name of George Mueller was that George Mueller oversaw and led an orphanage in Bristol. Now, this orphanage obviously started out small, but uh, in not too long a time, this this orphanage expanded to over 2,000 kids. And what was unique about George Mueller and his willingness to oversee and to lead this orphanage is that George Mueller trusted God every single day for the the necessary provision, like food. You see, George Mueller was not a rich man. He was not a philanthropist philanthropist who, uh, who had tons of money and was looking for ways to donate his money. No, he was just a man who was willing to answer a call faithfully. In fact, in the six, he read a, a guy, uh, an autobiography by a guy um, in the 1600s who oversaw an orphanage, and he was so touched by it that that's what kind of started this whole process of like, man, there are so many kids in Bristol that need help, that need love, that need attention, that need a home. And so this is why he began this orphanage. And what was interesting is that every single day, George Mueller knew that the provision for that day, the meals for that day, had to come from the Lord every single day. And so every day he prayed faithfully. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of humility. And he was a man who totally depended upon God to provide. If you read his biography or biographies that have been written about George Mueller and his ministry, it's just filled with account after account after account after account of how God has miraculously showed up and provided. One such account that has always stuck out in my mind was George Mueller sits down with, just imagine 2,000 kids, you know, give or take, sitting down, praying for their food that they're about to eat, yet here's the issue. There is no food. They're all sitting down to pray for the food that they're about to eat, trusting that God is going to provide. And during that prayer, there's a knock on the door. 
And the baker says, we got all this extra food, something happened or whatever else. I won't go into the store, but basically, it's like, could you use it? Um, yeah, we're already sitting down to eat. And you have just now provided our meal. This, this biography is just filled with many accounts. And it, this isn't a boast of George Mueller. This just reveals his dependence and his trust in a God who promises to care for him. There's another individual who actually is alive today because George Mueller was a man who lived in the 19th century. But there's a guy alive today who you have, I no doubt, probably been blessed and ministered to by his books. His name is Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn, uh, back in 1977, started a church in Portland, Oregon. The church exploded in a good way, um, and uh, it grew. He was, it, was, it was very effective. Uh, one of the prominent ministries in, within his church was uh, to, in a sense, resist or to uh, show their disapproval of abortion, and so, you know, Randy Alcorn and his church actually actively participated in silent resistance and would stand outside abortion clinics and try to convince young moms to rethink their choices. Well, it just so happens that Randy Alcorn uh, was sued by this uh, abortion clinic. And uh, at first it was supposed to, you know, pay like $19,000 of lost wages because they said about 10 people no longer uh, uh, they chose not to receive an abortion, and so the, the, the abortion clinic lost their proceeds from that, and so now this church was responsible. Well, as a long story short, it comes out that they, they took extra measure, and they, in fact, they wanted to take him out. They wanted to ruin his life and ruin his ministry, and the court awarded it, and so they made Randy Alcorn pay $8.2 million for damages. And of course, Randy Alcorn says, I'm not going to pay that to support the abortion cause. And so in order to not pay $8.2 million, he had to go down to minimum wage status. In other words, the government could only take anything above minimum wage. And so he had to resign from his role as a pastor of the church. And he continued to write books, and, uh, and he, could no, he could not take anything above minimum wage. This has been his life even to this day. Right now, he is fully dependent upon the the goodwill of people responding to God's prompting in their heart to support his family. Now, obviously, you say, well, what about all his books? Well, you can't take any royalties from that, but here's the irony of it. The articles have just kind of come back because it's interesting in the timing. The the court awarded, uh, said that Randy Alcorn had to pay $8.2 million. Just recently, he's kind of surpassed the $8.2 million royalty mark on his books that have every cent has been given away to ministries. Literally every penny. And so we see that God, in his sovereign ways, in his providential ways, not only has used the Alcorn family to, to, to encourage and to invest in kingdom values and kingdom principles to advance the cause of the kingdom, but we also see that he has continually, to this day, for the last 20 years, provided for the Alcorn family. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. You know, in theological circles, we call this providence we call this the providence of God the providence of God basically means this 
It means that God supplies what is necessary for all his creation at all times. God provides for all his creation what is necessary for at all times. Not to get too antiquated here, but the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, you know, we're not necessarily as a non-denominational church very catechism-oriented, but there are some great catechisms, like the Heidelberg Catechism, for example. And in this catechism, it, it, it describes or defines what the providence of God is, and I summarize it with a little bit better language. It says, Almighty God upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now the question we have to kind of answer for us this morning is why in the world that matters? Why does knowing or understanding or being aware of the providence of God matter to you and to me? What what does it matter to our life? Here's the response. So that you and I would be patient in adversity. So that you and I would be thankful in prosperity. And for everything that will happen in our lives, we would remain confident in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from God's love because everything is in God's hands and nothing or no one can so much as move unless he wills it so. This is why the providence of God matters. Because when you understand who your God is, when you understand his goodness toward you, when you understand his promises to you, the result, the intention behind it is that we would rest in our sovereign and providential daddy. That we would rest and know that he has got this. That God will, in fact, provide everything that is necessary for life and for godliness. That's why even one of the Hebrew descriptions of who God is, one of his names is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And so we see God's providence displayed in so many ways. We can look to the past and we see that God in his created order has displayed his providence Paul makes mention of this in Colossians 1.16 when he says, for through him, that is Jesus, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth, and he made things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. On a more personal note, we see God's providence on display in the fact that you are alive today because of his providence. You exist today. You are sitting here this morning right now because of the providence of God. You may not have thought about that this morning, but you are here today by divine design, as we often say, and you are here by the providence of God able to sit in this pew and listen to me. When you think about it, the fact that you are alive today just shows how God feels towards you. David says in Psalm 139, he says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. 
Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in our utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. The point that I'm getting at is this. You existed in the mind of God before you had any physical being. Think about that. God knew you before you even existed, before you were born from your mother's womb. We got a chance to talk about it earlier in our week at our dinner table. We were just giving thanks for how thankful we were for our family and all the different siblings that we have and, and giving, and, just, and, and Josh is sitting right next to me and I'm like, Josh, do you realize that before mom and dad even knew you, God knew you? Of which he replies, what? <laughs> so, and he has his own interesting way of making that connection. But the point is, God knows us. He, he knew that we, he had planned our existence. He had planned our purpose. He even planned the number of our days even before we lived. As one person says, all your yesterdays were in God's plan and all our tomorrows are in his plan even now. Think about this, uh, IBC family. You are in God's divine plan at this very moment. You are in his divine plan at this very moment. Really the conclusion we are to make is that I am valuable to God. That's why David will say in Psalm 139, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand and I wake up and you are still with me. We see that God's providence is on display, not only in his creation as a, 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 at large, but we see even in our individual lives because we are even in existence today. We see his, his providence on display in the present circumstances, in, the pre, in our present life even now. We see that ultimately by his very presence, all creation is sustained by God. This is what Paul says in, in verse 17 of Colossians 1. He holds all things together present tense, currently, by his very presence. The beauty of that is right now, not just in the past, not just bringing you into existence, but right now, God is actively working in every detail of your lives. When Paul is on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, and he's talking to these men of Athens, and and we see that they are inquiring about an unknown God. And Paul helps him understand. He's like, I know the unknown God. You don't know him, but I know him. Let me tell you about him. And so Paul gives description of which he also includes. He says, he himself gives us life and breath and everything, and he satisfies every need. For in him we live and move and exist. In other words, right now you have breath in your nostrils and your heart beats and you have the ability to sit upright by God's providential grace. We see ultimately as his children that he says he'll never leave us nor forsake us in Hebrews 13. As his children, as his disciples, he is preparing works beforehand that we should just walk in them. So when you think about your ministry that God is calling you to, 
any good that you do for God is actually prearranged by God. We see God's providence also displayed or promised in the future. We get a glimpse of that if you look through the books of Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation. We see how God is going to culminate or complete his redemptive work. But on a more personal note, once again, we see that God promises to complete the work that he has begun in our lives individually. Paul says in Philippians 1, for example, I am certain of this, that God who began a good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Brothers and sisters, when we stop and take the time to consider and reflect on all that God has done and all his promises to us, it seems very appropriate to sing a song like, Oh, Praise the Name. When you think about how good God has been to you and the fact that you are alive today, not because you wanted it so, not because you willed it so, but because God, by his, by his own grace and by his own mercy and by his own providential will, called you into existence for such a time as this that you would even live in a 21st century context in Port Angeles, Washington. Think about it. You could be anywhere else in the world at any other time and place in, this, in the history of the human race. And for such a time as this, he has called you to be here even now this morning. So yes, life in a sense seems to just kind of happen day in and day out, but we must understand as believers that God is actually orchestrating everything. And when you consider how detailed and how involved God is in every single detail of our life, it not only has the ability but has the intention to restore and to strengthen our trust in him. I mean, knowing how, how actively involved God is in working in our lives, whether we, whether we realize it or not, even in, the, even, a, even in our sin, God is actually working through that. It's, a, it's supposed to instill a confidence now and to instill a hope for tomorrow. Yet, in spite of all we know about God and in spite of everything we've read and learned in Scripture, no matter what, it still seems like trusting God can prove to be difficult at times. In spite of all God's goodness to us up to this point, and in spite of all God's promises to us, and in spite of all his faithfulness to us, it can still prove to be challenging to trust him in our current circumstances. The fact is, you and I are still sometimes susceptible to thinking wrongly that God will somehow not come through, or we are prone to think that God will not provide, or that he will not be faithful, or that he will not be good to me, maybe to everybody else, but not to me. And perhaps we might think these thoughts or struggle to not think these thoughts because maybe we don't know how God is supposed to relate to us. May we don't know his affections toward us. I mean, we, we might even acknowledge the fact that God is, yes, he cares about his creation, but does he really care for me? Or perhaps 
We just forget his promises, even though we're encouraged in Psalm 103 to forget not his benefits. Perhaps we don't forget his promises, we just don't know his promises. Or we just struggle to believe his promises. Or just the fact that our faith is weak. Brothers and sisters, this is why it is so essential. It is why it, it's why it's so critical that we know God as he really is. It's so important that we know God for who he really is, to know and to trust his promises to us, not near, merely by what we see or what we think or what we think we understand, but to know him as he reveals himself. You recall from the series we had a while back, the Real God series, A.W. Tozer says this, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why? Because what you think about God ultimately determines how you relate to God and how you think he relates to you. What you think about God ultimately determines the kind of faith or maybe even the strength of your faith. In other words, the reason why this matters is depending upon our perspective or understanding of God will ultimately determine our faith in God. The object of our faith, dependent on what we think about that, determines the strength of our faith. So if your object, or if your God is weak and disengaged, then it's likely you may struggle and wonder, does he really care about me? Will he really provide for me? But if your God is someone and I'm saying you're God in a loose sense, but if God is someone who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving and he cares about literally every single detail of our lives and he knows the hairs on our head and the lack thereof and he knows the number of years that he's given to us and he knows literally everything about us, then that ought to instill a sense of confidence and trust and belief that he will fulfill his promises to us, that he will provide for us. But even in spite of that, even knowing who God says he is as he reveals himself, we can still struggle. We can still waver in our trust of God. And when we begin to waver in our faith, we begin to worry. That five-letter word, worry. Now, there's actually a positive and a negative side of worry because not all worry is bad or wrong, but oftentimes it can be. You see, the positive sense of worry is really more of a healthy concern. It's okay to have a healthy concern about the things that matter most in life. That's the right kind of worry, it can be as simple as making sure that you get up at a, at a t- in a timely manner to, to either get to work or to be about the things that you need to be doing. It can be uh, getting your morning coffee and you know, making sure you start the day off right, so to speak. It can be your basic hygiene or it can be even things that matter a little bit more like a healthy diet so that you can at least, at least as far as you're able to control, uh, have a better quality of life. 
It is things like um, even having a healthy concern about where am I going to live? Just talking to uh, Steve Kennedy, and I know David Kennedy is on the, on the search for a place in Seattle. Seattle does not have cheap rent. And you don't get much for your dollar. I thought California was bad. And hearing about what's going on in Seattle, it's like, whoa. Lord, what are you gonna do now? And the fact is, there's a healthy concern about I gotta find a place to live. God, what are you gonna do? Not all worry is necessarily bad worry. In fact, Paul even says himself in regards to our walk of faith, he says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he had a daily burden for all the churches. This was not a negative worry. This was a positive worry. This was a a healthy concern about the health of those churches that he was able to start by God's grace. As Christians, as, as, as Christians seeking to follow Jesus faithfully, it is okay to have a healthy worry about following him and seeking to be obedient to him, seeking to pursue a life of holiness and therefore a life that is resisting sin by his grace. These are all healthy kinds of worry, but there's also a negative worry, probably more, we're probably more familiar with this kind of worry. You see, a negative worry is uh, not just a healthy concern, but a negative worry is an unhealthy anxiety about things that are outside of your control. You see, we can easily move from a, a healthy worry to an unhealthy worry when all of a sudden we become restless and anxious because we cannot control or manipulate the circumstances in our life. The literal word for worry or negative worry is to choke or to strangle. And so when you are experiencing an unhealthy or a negative worry, you are literally emotionally and spiritually and mentally and physically feeling choked out in life. It's the kind of worry that manifests itself when we face situations that are daunting to us. It's the kind of worry that is expressed when we begin to doubt God's care and goodness toward us. It is the kind of worry of unbelief and even disobedience. And the irony of this kind of worry, it does not take much to take us out. It doesn't take a lot of worry to overwhelm us. Much as scripture teaches, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? A little worry can put us in a tailspin. A little worry can be a very slippery slope. A little worry can make us go to a worst case scenario understanding or perspective. Even as a father, I have these moments or dreams, and Abby and I talk about these, But sometimes I feel worried. Sometimes I feel restless at night. I get these thoughts and I get these dreams about what if something bad happened to one of my children and would I be able to intervene and would I be able to protect them? Would I be able to provide for them? And I get kind of like worked up because my mind begins to go crazy going, well, what if this happens and what if this happens? And this scenario just gets embellished and out of control. And I'm tossing and turning and sweating at night because I am trying to control something that I have no power to control. And all of a sudden, a healthy concern about things that matter most in life move into an anxiousness, an unsettledness, and until I come back to a necessary point of reference that, God, 
My children are yours. Yes, I care for them. Yes, I want to provide for them. Yes, I want to protect for them. But in the end, they are yours. And you, I'm ultimately dependent on you to protect my kids. Only then can I come back to a healthy concern, to a good kind of worry, where I'm fully trusting that God has got this. But this negative worry is the kind of worry that Jesus addresses here in Matthew chapter six. It's the kind of unhealthy anxiousness that he's seeking to dispel in the lives of his followers. You see three different times, verse 25, verse 31, and also verse 34, Jesus says, as a way of exhortation, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. They're not suggestions, they're commands. He tells his disciples, do not worry. Now you recall the context in which we're talking about. He's just got done talking about pursuing the things of the kingdom, being consumed with the things of the kingdom. Don't worry about or be consumed about living a life of luxury instead of seek first the kingdom because obviously where your treasure is, there your heart already is. So Jesus is really identifying or driving his point home to our hearts He wants his disciples, he wants his followers to pursue that which matters most in life. And in the most simplistic of ways, he says, yeah, maybe the whole luxurious things that we can always pursue, but even the most basic of needs, he says, I got this. Don't be consumed, don't be worried about what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna wear, what you're gonna drink, where you're gonna live, all these different things. The Lord already has this, but then we oftentimes come back with a question, Lord, how can you say, do not worry when fill in the blank? How can you tell me not to worry when I have just been diagnosed with cancer? How can you say, do not worry when I've just been fired or cannot get enough hours to provide for my family at my work? How can you say do not worry when my kid is making every wrong decision under the sun and will not listen to me? How can you say do not worry when there's turmoil in my family? How can you say do not worry, just fill in your own personal circumstances? And Jesus addresses this in the most compassionate of ways. And I believe what he says first and foremost, he says, do not worry because you are valuable to God. You don't have reason to worry as disciples of Jesus, as his followers, because you are valuable to God, the Father. And for the first five verses, Jesus talks about what you're gonna eat and what you're gonna wear and what you're gonna, where you're gonna drink and where you're gonna live and all these different things. And the, the whole point that he's getting at in these, in these verses is this. If God cares for the birds of the field and even dresses the flowers in the field even more than Solomon, how much more so will he care for you? And the answer is immeasurably more. If God cares about even a swallow, how much more so will he care for you? Yet how easy it is to think that God seems to be absent in our lives, that he will somehow not come through, or to think that we are not valuable to him, 
that he doesn't care as much as the Bible says he does. I think the irony is John MacArthur would say, he says, you believe that God can redeem you. You believe that he will save you from your sin. You believe that he'll break the shackles from Satan. And you believe that he will take you to heaven where he's prepared a place for you. And you believe that he will keep you for all eternity. Yet you don't trust him to supply for your basic needs in life. God will do the big things, but he won't do the little things. God will send his son to die for you, but... He won't provide for your basic needs in life. The fact is, brothers and sisters, you matter very much to God. So much so that he's willing to literally send his son from heaven to earth to die in order to save you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he values you. Secondly, we see that The reason we are called not to worry is not only because we are valuable to God, but we also see that we are a child of God. Here we see Jesus contrasting those who belong to the world with those who belong to his kingdom. And on one hand, he says in verse 32, for idolaters or Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. What Jesus is telling us, he's saying, he's like, don't be like the, the way of this world. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the idolaters. Don't be like the pagans. You don't need to be like them. They have reason to worry because they're not my children. They have reason to worry because the promises do not apply to them. But as children of God, as citizens of the kingdom, as those who are saved by the grace of God, who's, who has eternity promised to them, who is the spirit of God indwelling them, you have every reason to rest that God has got this. You have every reason to believe and to be strengthened and renewed that if God takes care of even the little things in life, he will also take care of you because you are his child. Now oftentimes, even though he says, I will provide for your needs, sometimes we get our needs and our wants confused. He doesn't say, I promise everyone a life, a luxury. But he does say, I will provide for your needs. This is why Paul, the apostle, has the audacity to say in Philippians 4, 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything. And if you understand the context of which that is written, he was in prison And he was with Silas and they were giving worship and praise to God and had this miraculous delivery from prison. So the context of which Paul says, don't be anxious, don't be uh, worried in an unhealthy way, don't be untrusting to God. He's writing this from a context of being falsely accused and beaten and imprisoned. Yet he also understands The Lord is in this, and the Lord will provide. You see, Paul says, I I don't have to worry about being anxious. In fact, I'm gonna exhort you not to be anxious because we know who our God is, and we know that God has got this. That's why I love verse 33 in Matthew 6 when he says, instead, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What God desires of you and of me is this, that we would not be unnecessarily 
restless and worried or concerned about the things that he already promises to provide. What he desires of his children, what he desires of his followers is that we would seek him and seek the the values of his kingdom. In other words, what he's trying to help us understand is like, I'm going to take care of all your basic needs so that you are freed up to pursue my kingdom and my purposes and my glory. I'm freeing you up so you can pursue me. The things that matter most, the things that matter for eternity, that's what I'm doing. I was just talking to a dear brother earlier this week who was talking about his retirement, Steve Lakeman. In fact, I even talked to Rob Craven last night who retired last week. Looking at George Wood right now. He's in retirement mode right now. And looking good. Loving retirement. You know, retirement, I know, no doubt, as I've talked to some other of you, uh, it can be proved to be difficult. But one of the values, one of the benefits of retirement is this, is that you are now freed up to pursue things that maybe you've actually had in the back of your mind but never had the time or ability to pursue. As Steve Blakeman regarded, he says, I I get a chance to pursue all these things, not that I wasn't involved before, but now I have that much more time to pursue those things. Talking to Rob Craven last night, he says, I got all kinds of ideas and things that I'm excited to pursue but I've not been able to pursue them in the same way because I've been working a lot of hours. So he's like, I look forward to retirement because now I have the ability to pursue those things that I'm passionate about. And I believe in a very parallel fashion, God is saying this, I'm freeing you up so you can pursue me. Don't wake up every single day consumed about what am I going to eat and what am I going to wear and what am I going to drink and where am I going to live and all these different things. Hey, the the pagans think about those things. The pagans are unnecessarily worried about these things. The pagans are taken out by these things and they should be because they are solely responsible for these things. But as children, we get to rest in the fact that God says, I got this. You belong to me. And if you belong to me, I'm going to take care of you. I own everything. If you belong to me, I'm going to, I promise to provide everything that you need for life and for godliness. So just rest and pursue my kingdom. Pursue the advancement of my will and my purposes. Thirdly, we see that in the most practical or logical of reasons, the reason why you and I are called not to worry is because it does not help you one bit. Worry does not benefit you or serve you in any capacity. This is what Jesus says here in verse 34. He says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is really the logical reality of why we should not worry. I mean, I think all the other reasons are actually more impactful or should be more impactful, but this is really kind of the, uh, the practical sense of why worry is just a bad idea. In fact, Dr. Charles Mayo from the Mayo Clinic says, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system. He goes on to say, I've never met a person or known a person to die of over- overwork, but I know, I've known a lot of people who have died of worry. And Jesus goes on to say, don't worry about tomorrow. 
Because apparently you can't do anything about tomorrow today. It seems very simple, right? Yet how often are we so worried about the tomorrow? And we can't even be focused on today. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, he's like, you don't even really know what's gonna happen tomorrow. Not only can you not do anything about tomorrow today, but you don't even know what's gonna actually happen. So you're worried about things that you don't actually know. I mean, we might have our ideas, we might have our plans, we have what, we, we suspect certain things, but in the end, we don't really know. As James says in James chapter four, look here, you who say today or tomorrow, we're gonna go to a certain town and we'll stay there for a year. We'll do business there, we'll make a profit. He says, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like a morning fog. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. I think the point that Jesus is telling us is this. He's just saying, walk with me today. Walk with me today. Yes, it's okay to have an awareness or think about what tomorrow or what the future might look like, but in the end, walk with me today. Let's be fully engaged and fully present today. Receive what God has for you today. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. This past week, I had the opportunity to go to the, the cancer tr- uh, clinic that my mother-in-law is receiving her treatment at. And at this cancer clinic, um, I had the opportunity to meet many of the people that she's gotten to know. And it's really interesting. You walk into this room where everybody is kind of hooked up to their IVs and, and uh, there's, a, there's a unique bond that everybody has there. Here's the reality. We're all dying. But it's a little more sobering for them. It might be a little sooner than they had anticipated. And so you sit there, and they're all there, and you know, there's a great little community, and, and my mother-in-law has just had a, a, a tremendous ministry just by the very fact that she is also in that room. And we see that I got, we got to, my wife and I got to meet a number of people that she's gotten to know over the past few months. And uh, one particular person that we had the fortunate opportunity to pray with was Jen. I don't remember Jen's last name, but she's an Iranian Christian. She went in specifically just to be prayed for by mom before she went to go get the results of her scan. And so we just prayed for her and we asked God's blessing in her life and then she left and as mom was getting ready to leave, we hear this laughing and chatter. We're like, oh, good news, right? And she says, we don't know. It's inconclusive. It, it's likely in the bones. And so how are you doing with that? She's like, you know what? God's got this. She said something specific. Like I prayed, as I prayed with her, I said, God, you are the author and you are the perfecter of our faith. And she says, Aaron, I'm an author. I'm an author and I've been invited by Congress actually to speak to Congress on behalf of the American Lung Association. And the whole while, this whole journey that I am in a part of, I realize that God is the author of my life. He's the one writing my life. I'm a part of his story. 
And so I'm resting in his providence. I'm resting in his provision. I'm resting in his goodness. Why should you not worry? Well, brothers and sisters, we don't worry because you are valuable to God. You are a child of the king. There's no reason to worry when we know the love and the grace and the mercy of our Father. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, three and four, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. Therefore, we can identify with the words in Lamentations chapter three when he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God has been faithful to you even to this moment. And he says, I will continue to be faithful to the utter end.